Uh, one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians was to address false teachers that had been kind of infiltrating this church in Colossae. In fact, in chapter 2, he speaks of, of empty philosophy and inordinate allegiance to uh, human tradition, to elemental spiritual forces in the world. And basically, it was a thinking that caused people to veer their attention away from Christ. Isn't it interesting how you can be in a church, it can call itself Christian, and yet veer our attention away from Christ, right? You can say the name, be involved in a lot of activity, but the focus is not Christ. The focus is basically your performance to somehow gain acceptance with God. In Colossians 2.18, Paul speaks of these false teachers advocating an aesthetic lifestyle, providing food restrictions and holy days. And again, in order to communicate that, hey, we're on the in crowd and basically others who don't do these things are not on the in crowd. Uh, if, if we measure our spiritual life just by the things that we need to avoid, you know, to clean up our act. And many of you maybe grew up in Christian subcultures that were that way. It's just kind of leaves you empty, doesn't it? Uh, and he warns of revering other spiritual entities such as angels, visions, revelations. It's not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but it's that they're touting their experience with these that's setting themselves apart from other Christians, because they had these experiences and others didn't. Now, they don't say it outright, but you can tell by how these false teachers talk. You can tell by what they criticize that they think they have the inside track with God. And that's the problem. You know, they're just a little bit more special. Just a little bit more in than you are. You know, they get it, you don't. And the Bible refers to this as being puffed up proud. And this is what causes divisions within the body of Christ. And I'll just add this. There's not a one of us in here that are immune to that kind of arrogance, right? All of us can be susceptible to that kind of thinking. Now, this comes in all kinds of forms, does it not? You know, it just depends on what church you go to, what your subcultural code is that everybody's supposed to follow. Maybe for this, you know, group over here, it's you got to homeschool. Or maybe for this group over here, you can't drink or you can't play cards or you can't go to movies. I mean, there's all kinds of different things you know you have to follow in order to be accepted, okay? And again, it's not that any one of those things are bad. It's that you use that to rate the spirituality of yourself, you know, with others. And what this does, no matter what the flavor is, what it does is that it takes away from the sufficiency of Christ. Because Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. The Bible is not enough. The gospel is not enough. Being in Christ, Christ in me, that is not enough. You also need to do this. You also need to do that. You have to follow this little program. You have to memorize this little spiel and, and follow this you know, little track here. And then you're going to be accepted. And here's the deal about this. The, the social power of this, the, the pull of this is immense when you consider that you have friends that do this. You have people that you respect that are in it. So you think, well, it can't be all bad if, you know, these people that I know are in it, right? And you'll go down this road 
and you feel like something's wrong, but there's just enough truth to keep you, you know, still in that way of thinking. But there's also just enough, you know, discordance in your mind and heart to know that something is not right here. You ever been in a situation like that? You just know something's not right. Now, in contrast to that, what Paul is doing is showing that in Christ, it's enough. That Christ is our all in all. And let me tell you something. When you get to that understanding and you realize it's all about Christ, it's not about, you know, whether I'm AG or Baptist or Presbyterian or Reformed or, you know, whatever label you want to give yourself... It's in Christ and him alone. It's why Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, that our focus needs to be on Christ, where he is seated, right? Take your eyes off of the earthly religious performance. And, or thinking that, you know, you got to have these special experiences in order to be in. Know Christ, grow in Christ, Seek Christ, commune with Christ. It's all about Christ. So when we get our eyes off of Christ and we focus on this contrived religious experience, listen, our spiritual effectiveness is diminished. It matters not how many people follow the false teachers. You can never rate God's approval by counting noses. Ever. Okay? Just because a group has a bunch of people in it doesn't mean God is in it. Certainly we understand that, right? And I would would say conversely, just because something is small doesn't mean God is not in that as well. We have to be much wiser and discerning than just to be sucked into something just because a bunch of people are involved. There's got to be more to it than that. So what Paul does is he fires off some some last instructions here in the book of Colossians. And he's trying to communicate, all right, now this is how you're going to have maximum influence. Not all this contrived performance in religious activity. Don't worry about whether all these other people are going to approve or not. It's about Christ. And here's what that's going to look like. And that's what he says here in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. So let's all stand and we're going to take a look at this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So God, I pray for us in this fellowship that, that we would not be prideful and think we have the corner on the market of how a church is to operate that we would approach all our ministries with great humility, knowing that there's always room to grow, that we would not think that our little club does it better than everybody else. But may we, Lord, seek Christ, have him truly be our life, our energy, and all that we do, knowing that we will fail, 
knowing that they will, there will be issues, knowing that there's, there's no life or ministry that is perfect, but even in that, still seeking you, still depending on you, work in us in a powerful way, and may, may the truth of this passage continue to transform our lives because we believe your word to be true. We believe that you took the time and the energy to breathe through men of old for them to write these words down and you have preserved it to now. And so we follow it and we thank you for your word and we pray that we as a result may be faithful disciples for it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people set in agreement. Amen, you may be seated, thank you. Continue steadfastly in prayer. We are to make our prayers constant. Steadfast comes from a Greek word that actually means to be devoted to. The idea is that we are to persevere in prayer. Now listen, before I even start, once you start talking about prayer and our need for it, all kinds of guilt just washes over Christians. It's like our minds just completely get cloudy because none of us think we pray enough. I mean, right? I don't, right? I could always use work in that, right? So let's just set that aside, admit we could all improve and get on with it, okay? So he says, be devoted to prayer. He wants the church to be constant in prayer. Now, elsewhere, we are told to pray without ceasing. It just means that in everything, I am praying. When I'm driving, I am praying. During this church service, I am praying. 5.30 tonight, I'm really going to be praying for the Broncos, okay? I'm praying at all times. Now, listen, we cannot forget that to pray is, is an injunction here, and that the motivation to pray is often out of need, is it not? So that when we lack in our prayer, more than likely it's because we simply do not see a need at the moment to pray. But when needs arise, prayer becomes critical, right? I mean, my marriage is going south, man, you know, I'm going to be praying. I may lose my job, man, I'm going to be hitting my knees asking God to provide. There's no money left, God, rain down on us, I mean, Uh, The doctor says the test was positive. I'm going to be praying, right? So when there's great need, we pray. Our problem is, is that when external circumstances go our way and we don't have needs that are, you know, just so evident like that, we think there's no need to pray. Eh, Wrong answer, right? Tim Keller pastor, writer who ministers in Manhattan, said this, and I quote, in the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. I had to. In the fall of 1999, I taught a Bible study course on the Psalms. It became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. Then came the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, when our whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression, even as it rallied. For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife, Kathy, struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease. Finally, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. 
At one point during all this, my wife urged me to do something with her that we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night. Every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As we remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not uh, get around to it uh, some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if you don't, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we are facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. Hmm. My dear friends, let me just ask you this. Is there any moment in our life where we could say, you know what? I really don't need the grace of God. <laughs> right? I mean, how could you say that? I mean, is there, is there a moment in our life where we say, you know, I just want to be free of the wisdom and the presence of Christ. I want to be free of his protection. Of course not, all right? We want to be able to experience all that. And how do we do that? Except in prayer, in communion with God. Remember that prayer is first and foremost an individual exercise. It is. And I would suggest, because this goes on a lot, I would suggest that we not judge one another when, you know, we hear somebody praying in a group and you might think, oh, well, they don't know how to pray. Or we not judge a church because it doesn't parade prayer around and make it into a spectacle. Because you don't see a person praying like you think they should doesn't mean that they don't know how to pray. And because a church doesn't use prayer as a marketing ploy to parade around like a carnival barker does, does not mean that the saints are not devoted to prayer. I mean, it is really not a good spot to be in, is it? When we expect of others what God does not require. The words of Jesus are instructive here. This is, by the way, exactly what the people, the false teachers at Colossae were doing, demanding of believers that they do what God never demanded. And this is what Jesus said. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. So they're doing it for the show. Oh, look how spiritual he sounds. Boy, she knows how to pray. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. Now, he's not saying don't ever pray publicly because elsewhere we're instructed as a church to have prayer in the corporate setting. But what he's saying, don't do it for the sake of show. That's not the issue. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
We must be steadfast in prayer. Pray about everything. Everything. Be mentally and spiritually alert in prayer. He says, being watchful in it. That's our next phrase. The Greek word here means to be alert, to be aware. Now, when we are aware and spiritually alert, we are far more effective in our prayer. We could say it this way, that our prayers should be preemptive. Our prayers are actually a tactical maneuver in a spiritual battle. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This is a popular verse among men, men's meetings. But it's a way of saying we can never let our spiritual guard down, right? I mean, we get in trouble when we let our guard down. When the things that were normally convictions for us, we just lay aside, right? That's when we get in trouble. He's saying here, do never let your spiritual guard down. Now, there are some reasons why this is crucial. One is that when we are praying, we are far less susceptible then to give in to temptation. Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Another reason is because the world, the flesh, and the devil never take a vacation. We realize that? I mean, Satan especially is aggressively pursuing to deceive and to destroy us. Listen to what it says. Be sober-minded, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, we don't have any problem in southwest Missouri to know that we better pack heat, right? If, all right? I'm going to have my conceal and carry, and nobody's going to mess with me. Nothing wrong with that. I'm one too, all right? I get it. But all that we were as concerned about our spiritual life, that we, that we prayed to God and relied on him as our weaponry in doing spiritual battle. Watch and pray. Be sober-minded. And when the Apostle Paul gave that beautiful passage in Ephesians about the, the armor of God, this is how he ended the section. He said this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And I love what he said there about what he was asking them to pray for him about. All right, And I think we need to be eager to allow people to pray for us. And we're going to talk more about that next week of uh, why he said it that way. It is interesting. I'll just say this. You hardly ever heard Paul say, pray that I can get out of prison. He didn't pray that in Colossians, even, even though he's in bondage. No, he's praying, Lord, help me that I'll have an opportunity and take that opportunity for the gospel. 
Just a, a cool perspective that he had there. Listen, there are evil forces that seek to tantalize and capture us. And we have to be wide awake as we pray. Right? Have you ever had noises go on in the middle of the night and, and you get up? I mean, if I get up like that, I, I can't go back to sleep. I mean, I am awake for the rest of the night, right? You may remember me telling the story. Years ago, Janet and I got away for a retreat in uh, Eureka Springs. And at about 3 in the morning, it was this uh, condo all by ourselves. And we were the only ones in this thing. A two-story deal. We were upstairs sleeping. And she, at about 3 in the morning, heard somebody trying to get into the bottom, uh, rattling the door. And, and I went down with just a T-shirt and underwear on, and that alone scared whoever would have been there away. <laughs> I know. All right, Bubba is coming down, and we're getting out of the way, all right? But it was frightening, okay? It was frightening because you got somebody trying to break in. And I told Jen, I said, listen, I will stay awake. You can go to sleep. She goes, no way. I just want to leave. And so, and <laughs> to make the story even a little funnier, I called the caretaker who was right there, and I said, hey, dude, somebody was trying to break in here. And he goes, now, we've got ducks that roam the ground, and I didn't hear them at all. I go, that's your security system? Ducks? Really? Ducks? So, we have not been back to Eureka Springs. That was about 10 years ago. The point, though, is this. You get up. You feel like you're in danger. What are you doing? You are awake, right? I mean, I was, I was set to do something. I don't know what I'd have done, but you are watchful. The insight of C.S. Lewis can be helpful here. He said, no one in his senses, if he has any power of ordering his own day, would reserve his chief prayers for bedtime. Obviously, the worst possible hour for any action which needs concentration. My own plan when hard-pressed is to seize any time and place, however unsuitable, in preference to the last waking moment. The body ought to pray as well as the head. Isn't that good? I read recently an insight into prayer through the natural world of how the, an eagle does not fight a snake on the ground. That's the snake's territory. It picks it up and takes it to the sky in his battleground. The, sta- the snake has no stamina, power, or balance in the air, but it's, it's weak and vulnerable. When the snake is in the air, then the eagle has the advantage. The point is we are to take our fight into the spiritual realm by praying. And when you are in the spiritual realm, God takes over our battles. There is a mental alertness that is needed, a realization that the spiritual battle is real and we are participants in it. Second Chronicles 20.15 says, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, what is in front of you, right? For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. The last phrase in this verse, we're to do it with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is to be the sphere in which all of our praying and our watching is to take place. When we are talking about maximum 
influence for ministry. I mean, what do people become encouraged more about? The person who is thankful and grateful or the person who's complaining and moaning and bitter, right? It's obvious. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who's truly thankful recognizes God as sovereign. He's the giver of all good gifts. And it just, it just flows out of the person who realizes their place in the universe and how God has intervened on their behalf. And when Paul says, always and in everything, you know what he's saying? It eliminates circumstances as a qualifier. It matters not what our circumstances are. We can always walk in contentment and gratefulness, right? We choose thankfulness. I don't just feel it and then I'm going to be thankful. I choose to be thankful to an almighty God when I observe the reality of where I was headed, how good he's been to me, and then my heart overflows in thankfulness. Even when trials come, even when hardships hardships come, I realize that I can still be thankful that God is still intervening on my behalf and working in me. And often the roadblocks to thankfulness are wrong presumptions that we make about God. Let's be honest. Some of us think that God owes us something. I mean, we have these equations we make in our mind. As long as I do this, then God is going to do this for me. He's going to make it a little easier, right? I mean, we make that deal. And then when we feel like God doesn't come through for us, we feel this great sense of disappointment and we get ticked at God. And I would suggest that such a position is not only hazardous to our faith, but it's very short-sighted. And it's actually a little prideful. Can we not admit that? Because the person who thinks that he or she is owed something is rarely in a position to be thankful. A grateful heart is a heart that is pointed true north for maximum effectiveness. And many people grow bitter when hurts come. But we get to choose gratefulness by bending our knee before our sovereign king. And then we give him thanks. When we encase our hearts in this bitterness, when we recount our hurts, especially from other people, And we are just setting ourselves up for a road where discontent is going to be our primary experience. Isn't it interesting how even the people that have hurt us, when we pray for them, how our perspective changes? Have you ever noticed that? You pray for the person who's maybe been a source of conflict. And the more you pray, the more God just kind of turns your heart away from all the bitterness And seeing more what is reality. Maybe you even begin to be a little empathetic towards their issues and their problems that they're struggling with. I mean, before you were bitter and just ticked at them. And now God begins to give you a heart of love for them as you're praying. Uh, It's really cool that when we grow in our gratefulness to God, we also grow in our thankfulness of others. Second, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says for all of you, and certainly there were good things that Paul saw in the Thessalonians. But I don't think that this church was anything special compared to other churches. I think that there were people who probably irritated Paul or one another. They had issues just like any other church, right? I mean, there were Jew and Gentile together. There had to be issues and problems that they were facing. And Paul says, I am grateful, I am thankful for all of you, always. I wonder if we could hear more of Paul's prayer. It might not sound like this. You know, Lord, Thank you for each and every one of these people. Thank you that they are your creation. They are made in your image and you value them. May I value them as well. May you pour your grace upon them. May they experience your best for them. It's those kinds of prayers. And God just gives you a thankful heart. If we're going to be watchful, alert, thankful, and steadfast in our prayers, then we cannot wait until we feel like praying. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 